Hey, this is Kate Nocera, and you're listening to No One Knows Anything, the BuzzFeed News Politics Podcast. And I'm Charlie Warzel, a senior tech writer at BuzzFeed News. Every week, we talk about this crazy time in American politics, break down a few stories, and try and make sense of things. Today, we are going to be talking about the massive fight between the NFL and the President of the United States, Donald Trump. And we're also going to be talking about how Facebook is dealing with the Russia investigations. We uh, are also going to have a chat about how Charlie can't really find a story to work on. It's going to be our new spinoff podcast. It's going to be <laughs> What great. should Charlie write about? So joining us now uh, to talk about the NFL and what exactly is going on with all of that is Darren Sands. Darren is a political reporter at BuzzFeed News, has covered the Black Lives Matter movement and black politics broadly for years. Uh, he used to be a sports writer in another life, and unfortunately, he loves the Patriots, but we <laughs> forgive him. Uh, Darren, how are you? I'm good. Hi, how you doing, guys? We're good. So there's been this just kind of massive blow up, it feels like, between the president of the United States and the National Football League. And I'm wondering if you could back up a bit and tell us what that's all about. Yeah, sure. At the beginning of uh, the 2016 season, if you can bring yourself back to like the fall of 2016, which is like I, I can't. <laughs> But I would like say this, simpler times, but that's just not the case. Yeah, it's like sort of like this this politically charged time in our country, right? And 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 Colin Kaepernick, who was a at the time a um, quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers, um, had decided to sit out the national anthem in protest of um, police brutality, and he um, had explained this that he was going to do this for the entire season. Um, he changed it to um, a kneeling gesture. Um, when a lot of that backlash had sort of started to be permeated over the story. And I think he um, understood pretty early on how impactful it was becoming. Uh, And so he was no longer on the team. Uh, And so his employment status this year has begun to, he's no longer in the league, rather. So his employment status has really galvanized a lot of people who support him. There was a, a rally in New York City a few weeks ago. Uh, for instance, and 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 uh, I think people have taken up this political cause for him. Uh, they want him to be employed by the NFL. He's 28 years old. Um, he can still play, obviously. He's he's pretty talented. And I think what's happened now with Donald Trump um, sort of injecting himself into this story, and the reason why we're talking about it now, and in a lot of ways, I think football has become our national pastime. And and I think that the protest and and Donald Trump just makes everything such a um, a charged event right now. Yeah, just to explain what happened, on, on Friday night, Trump got up at a rally in Alabama in front of a mostly white audience and uh, went off on kind of a bit of a tangent that, you know, any football player who knelt during the national anthem, the owners should, quote unquote, get those son of a bitch, I would say, get that son of a bitch off the field. When somebody disrespects our flag, to say, get that son of a bitch off the field right now, out, he's fired. He's fired! That's what he said on Friday. He has continually tweeted about this, brought attention to it, really has made it a pretty big cause of the week. Yeah, and he's talked about, one of the interesting parts of that 
address that he made in Huntsville was this idea that, like, they're disrespecting our flag. Um, and I think that word, our, um, means a lot to his base. And I think that really touches a nerve with the people who aren't pro-Trump. And so I think that's why what you saw last week was just people reacting in all sorts of ways. People on teams were um, locking arms. There were there were players who decided to kneel. I think there were there were scores of players who just kneeled, I think, in a lot of ways in defense of free speech. I think there were people who were kneeling as sort of an anti-Trump gesture. Um, and I think there's some concern amongst the activist community that's supporting Kaepernick and is fighting against police brutality that um, in a lot of ways the gesture has been co-opted. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in the weeks to come. You're sort of touching on that there, but I, I think it's worth noting even more that as happens with everything with Trump, he blurs and muddies all the lines, however you want to say it, in in anything that he touches. He makes it sort of about him. And these protests are sort of confusing at the moment. There's people standing for the anthem, kneeling after, you know, any per, permutation of, of of the kneeling or, or locking arms gesture. And I guess the question, my question for you is, are people in the movement, are activists who've been monitoring and, and, and dealing with this for a while since Kaepernick, are they upset that this has gotten away from where it originally started? Or, or, or is there this, this feeling that, hey, you know, people are paying attention to this. It's in the news. It is the national story right now. And, and we're just glad that the dialogue is, is happening in some weird way. Yeah, Charlie, I think there's a little bit of both out there. Um, there there's, I think there is a concern, really, that the co-opting of this protest can be a distracting thing. And I think that people who have been organizing around this and really trying to figure out ways to galvanize and, and energize, really, people around um, this issue kind of fear that if it becomes about Trump and it becomes about the NFL and, and it becomes about free speech and this idea of entitlement that comes from these players, it's just entirely distracting and so what I think they're doing is trying to really um, make a concerted effort to, like, put the issue at the forefront and be really explicit about what Kaepernick was initially trying to uh, bring attention to uh, last year. And a lot of the players, I think, are very emotional about all of these issues. Um, and so I do think that there is some concern, but I do think at the same time that there's a lot of energy. Um, there are people who are in politics who I think understand the extent to which this can be a really big thing for people to, to sort of get around. And I think the problem that people had in 2016 was that they, they didn't know how to energize young people especially. And when you talk about some of the numbers in 2016, there was, you know, 700,000 fewer, for instance, black voters that year than there were in 2012. And so that's like a real problem when <laughs> the Democratic mm-hmm. Party is trying to put together like a winning coalition. So I think there's some people who really are hoping that this is going to be something that people can rally around and that sort of like a mass movement comes out of it to, to, to really fight against, you know, racial inequality and talk about white supremacy and talk about police brutality and how all those issues interconnect. 
I think uh, one thing that I've found incredibly interesting uh, through all of this is Trump's insistence that it is not about race. So how are people responding to Trump's reaction to all of this and his sort of continuation of having this fight? Yeah, it's difficult because I think that a lot of the players took it as a very offensive thing. And and, and I think they, they saw it as something that they saw the president of the United States telling them what to do and telling them how to be. And there's a lot of anxiety about what the expectations are of a young black man in America who makes a very good living playing football. And the idea of sort of respectability, um, how do you comport yourself in public, those are all issues that are kind of like fraught with race in ways I think Trump kind of understands. And ginning ginning up his base, as you kind of say, is like there's very coded messages in a lot of what Trump says, I think people feel like. And so the idea that he was going to get up in Huntsville Alabama and 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 talking to his base and talking about NFL players who are explicitly protesting the anthem on this issue the idea that that wasn't going to be about race i think is like unrealistic and so it's complicated in like very difficult ways and it's why we're having the sort of national conversation right now i think You've done some reporting and talking to the mothers of some of these players. I mean, can you can you tell us a little bit about what you're hearing from actual you know players that the football community mm-hmm. through your reporting? Yeah, the the language factor was really important, I think, and and using the word "sons of bitches," right? It's like the mothers of some of these NFL players. There, there's a there's an, um, a group associated with the National Football League Players Association that is made up of NFL moms. And these moms are active in the community. Uh, they go to games, they do events, they have some charitable causes. And um, I was able to get this letter that they'd sent, an open letter, basically, you know, defending their sons. And I, I ended up talking to the president of the organization and and she was really upset. Uh, her name was Ms. Michelle Green. She's the mother of a retired player named Bryant McKinney. And, you know, when I talked to her, I brought up this idea that, like, did you, that, you know, they put in the letter that they took it personally. And I said, you know, how do you feel that he would use that language up there? And she was very apprehensive about saying we're not bitches, right? Like, this word uh, was very sensitive to her. But she did say in the, in the quotes in the story that I wrote that, you know, he's, we're not what he said we were. And so it's like people on the one hand, like, this is a very national story, right? And this is a very tense time in our country. But I think for the players on the field who put their bodies on the line and for families and for Colin Kaepernick himself, it's a very sensitive thing. And so... You know, some of that reporting has kind of come out and and even talking to folks who have talked to Kaepernick himself. It's a tough time for him as well. He's trying to stay ready for the season, but he's also, you know, from talking to people from what I've heard, he's um, also trying to figure out, you know, if if it doesn't happen, like how can he continue to kind of use um, his platform to affect change? Um, and he's been giving of his own personal fortune to all sorts of causes across the country and groups 
um, and people who are sort of active doing different things in the community. And so I think there's a distinct sense around like the NFL community that they don't want the moment to go by without having a real profound effect on, you know, the conversation in our country, but also the conditions of people of color um, who are suffering and, and people who, you know, are fighting against police brutality. All right, Darren, thanks so much for joining us. Sure. See what happens the happens this weekend. Thanks, Kate. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks. So next we want to talk about Facebook and the sort of t- terrible couple of weeks that the company has had. There have been a lot of revelations as to Facebook's uh, involvement in the misinformation and potential Russian interference that took place in the 2016 election. And Washington has gotten involved. And Facebook sort of, at this moment in time, seems to find itself with very few friends on either side of the aisle. BuzzFeed News senior reporter Alex Kantrowitz is joining us. And Alex has been in D.C. this week dealing with, with, with Facebook's time on, on Capitol Hill. And uh, Alex has written about Facebook in, in all iterations. And uh, thanks for coming on. It's good to be here. Uh, longtime listener, first time caller. <laughs> So, Alex, you were in D.C. this week. You spent some time talking to members of Congress as the revelations came out that some Russians had bought dark advertising on Facebook to try and maybe sway the election. What was the reaction of lawmakers on the Hill? The number one thing that the lawmakers want is details right now. I think they're all waiting to see the ads, waiting to see the targeting. Some are asking sophisticated questions. Others are kind of in the dark about what's going on. But what they want to know right now is uh, what the hell happened. And I don't think they have a real good idea. And I think it took Facebook a long time to have a decent idea uh, on its own. So right now they're initiating this process where they're trying to gather as much information as possible and then, uh, you know, decide whether or not they need to bring down the hammer. One thing that I always think about with, and you hinted at this, when you're dealing with technology companies in Washington, D.C., is the level of sophistication that these lawmakers have or don't have. Facebook's advertising platform, which is sort of at the center of this, as you are sort of an expert on, very complicated. What is your sense, speaking to them, of how much they know about the inner workings of the system and and the complexities, and where are they at with that? Some of them are asking good questions. So Eric Swalwell, a Democratic member of the House Intel Committee, said he wants to see whether or not the same creative that was used by the Internet Research Agency, that Kremlin-linked organization that ran these ads on Facebook in an attempt to interfere with the election, whether the creative that they use matches some of the creative that the Trump campaign used. So that's like the actual images that appeared in the ad, which, okay, Mm -hmm. maybe that there's something interesting there. So they're looking for collusion between the Trump campaign and this organization. I think the, that everybody sort of admits, whether they say it out loud or not, that the chances are pretty slim that they're going to find that. And they're looking for the smoking gun. So you, the smoking gun could be the, that creative. The real thing that would be interesting uh, would be if they were using the same email addresses to target as the campaign or they were using similar uh, voter scores that are in the campaign system. So I don't think anybody in Congress has a really good understanding of how that stuff uh, works on the back end of Facebook. There's a, a pretty big knowledge gap in terms of what they know and what they need to know. It seems like Facebook 
itself kind of was caught off guard by a lot of this. I mean, if you remember after the election, you obviously remember after the election, Mark Zuckerberg, CEO, basically said it was ridiculous that fake news or anything about Facebook could have had any kind of role in the election and has since in the last couple of weeks really been a little grovelly about, you know, man, we fucked up so bad. Could you, I know you had a big story kind of about the about some of that today. Could you walk us through a little bit of that? Yeah, absolutely. And just to get off, Facebook's biggest problems in the past couple of years have all been a, a result of them just assuming that there was too much good happening on their platform and not really anticipating the bad stuff. Uh, you can look at everything from the fake news issue to the violence issue on Facebook Live. And all this stuff is a result of Facebook you know, not imagining that its platform can be capable of bad, uh, bad stuff. So maybe we can go back to that in a bit. The news that we broke Friday was that Facebook's VP of Communications and Policy, Elliot Schrage, um, said the pretty crazy line that Mark Zuckerberg uttered two days uh, after the election. He actually tested that out. And that was in reference to the notion that misinformation on Facebook could have swayed the election or one way or another or influenced it at least. And Zuck initially was dismissive. He called it a pretty crazy idea. Now, uh, on Wednesday, he apologized for that. So the story that we broke was this didn't come out of nowhere from Zuckerberg. It was something that Facebook was toying around with in public uh, in front of a group of 70, around 70 communications professionals in a gathering in San Francisco the day after the election. So uh, the election happens. The next day, Shrej goes out and says it's a pretty crazy idea. The day after that, Zuckerberg says it's a crazy, pretty crazy idea. So there was this institutional uh, organization-wide denial that the nefarious aspects of what actually happened happened. And Facebook is now kind of coming to the realization like, oh, this bad stuff did happen. People weren't as good as we thought. And it seems like a really great insight into the 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 mind of of Facebook that, you know, that this is a, a company at sort of unprecedented scale in the world, over 2 billion users, that also, that, that works in a a highly structured PR environment that there is not a lot of open candor and uh, <laughs> in candid nature when when Mark Zuckerberg issues a statement. It, it seems to sort of peel back the layers on that a little bit. Yeah, when you uh, do an interview with Facebook folks, a lot of times it will feel like they're uh, reading off a sheet of paper. One of the interesting things uh, when you speak with Zuckerberg, he actually gives you more than the traditional Facebook product manager. People have this image of him as being a machine or like being a robot that just like reads script from, you know, his programming language and just reads it off into the into the world. But Zuck is actually a lot more human than a lot of people think. This 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 line, uh, of course, was something that was talked about by, uh, you know, communications people before he uttered it. And I, I think the real thing that it's illuminating about is that you wanted to know, I think the public should had, had a right to know uh, whether that was a flippant remark that Zuck made and wasn't well thought out or was a well thought out institutional remark indicating a greater, a greater blind spot to what actually happened. And it's the second one, which I think is pretty interesting and newsworthy and like kind of sets the stage for where we are now. And this sort of dovetails into the statements that he made in the middle of, of last week about responding to Donald Trump tweeted... Uh, you know that that Facebook was sort of out out to get him and and had anti-Trump bias. Uh, Zuckerberg defended that, but his remark in general was was sort of very defensive and and sort of 
painting things both ways, saying Facebook has enormous influence. It turned out more people in this in the 2016 election than both campaigns combined. Also, you know, yes, there are, it has influence in a in a negative way, perhaps, but it's not it's it's not you know big. It's not um, the good outweighs the bad. Pretty classic Facebook, but it really seems like that statement was notable because of the defensiveness, but also notable in this sort of disconnect with the way that 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 the world is is viewing the platform and and i think it's sort of what you what you brought up a a few moments ago that you know this this idea that you know nothing nothing truly sinister or evil can happen here because we're a connecting force for good yeah i've been thinking about this Uh, let me start by saying that facebook probably thinks it's a bit of a pinata right now and it's not entirely wrong there they are being a lot of things happen during this election and that company is being held up right now at this moment as sort of like uh, the, the implied nature bump from a lot of comments you see is that like they were the be all evil. Yes, they're very powerful. But, you know, did Facebook's vulnerabilities sway the election? Ultimately, probably not. That said, the comment was in- incredibly defensive. Uh, you know, he said the right doesn't like us and the left doesn't like us. And we're just, you know, a platform for all ideas. Well, the right could have legitimate criticism of your platform and the left could have legitimate criticism of your platform, too. Uh, so it doesn't mean that you're right if both sides have have complaints. And this last thing about Facebook's vulnerability. So uh, there's been this this meme going around on Twitter that I think is is really good. That you know Facebook has people that are looking for bugs in its software, um, and they should really hire people who don't fit the traditional Facebook optimistic mentality about the world, who are just looking for bad things that society can do with the platform and then try to patch them up. And Charlie, maybe I'll kick to you because uh, what you said, we, we had a meeting after Facebook introduced its live video product. And what you said during this during that meeting was was pretty interesting. It was like, you know, you anticipated some problems that they were that they were going to have. And, you know, maybe Facebook needs some people like Charlie who are going to, um, you know, <laughs> be able to anticipate the bad stuff and, and plan ahead. I don't know. Is this how it goes? Can I kind of start? I feel like I'm a Howard Stern on Letterman right now. Now I'm asking the <laughs> questions. But... Charlie, what what did you say uh, in that meeting? It seemed to me like a classic example of this na- naivete by the company. He said, you know, I think with Facebook Live, they said we want raw emotional footage. Uh, you know, that's what we want. We want it to be raw and unedited and live. And, you know, I thought to myself, like, Facebook is not some is not a company that really embraces the, the darker side of things, the raw side of things. It's a very sort of, as evidenced by the workshopping statements, it is a very clean, overthought view of, of the world. And so, you know, my initial instinct was, People are going to probably die on this service. You know, something whether it's you know filming something and a natural disaster happens, or you know a school shooting, something terrible, uh, because that's the nature of raw and live. It's it's good and funny. It's Chewbacca mom. It's also you know racism, bigotry, violence. Like that's the world, and Facebook wants to be a window to the world. Anyway, I I think that 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 you're right on there in the sense of it, Facebook has a, has a really hard time seeing around the corners of their products or a hard time, you know, communicating the reality of being the world's biggest connective platform, you know, in a way that that signals to people that they 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 understand they're going to have to take the good with the bad. I, I saw something on Twitter a couple of days ago. I think there was this like, it's kind of incredible that, or maybe Alex, you said it, that's, that it's kind of incredible that the, the platform that was just like the Harvard hookup thing is now, you know, kind of at the center of the investigation. 
whether Russia influenced the election. <laughs> and they, they still kind of think in this way that they're just like this cool little thing you use in college to like connect with your friends. Right. And the optimistic view is that this moment in time, you know, having to go uh, in front of the Senate Intelligence Committee and talking about how, uh, you know, nefarious actors are trying to influence, you know, the U.S. election and hack democracy. Maybe that will be a turning point for them where they start to think, hey, there might not be only good things happening with our products and we should really think this out before we release them to the public. Last question. How fucked do you think they are? Well, we, we talked earlier about how well the people in Congress know Facebook's ad platform. And I think it's an easy statement to make that they don't know it as well as Facebook. And even Facebook doesn't seem to know it that well. Uh, we, we just saw a few weeks or, or yeah, a few weeks ago, um, it came to light that Facebook didn't know that there was bigoted ad targeting in its ad platform. There were actually categories you could select in the Facebook ad platform that would let you advertise to people interested in how to burn Jews and the Nazi party. And Facebook's like, oh, we didn't anticipate this, and we took it out. So it just underscores how complicated the Facebook ad platform is. And if Facebook, uh, you know, if people inside Facebook uh, have a hard time grasping the totality of this thing, and they do have some experts there, then Congress for sure has uh, a, a rough time doing it. So, you know, right now Congress is playing nice. I asked uh, uh, Congressman Adam Schiff when I spoke with him, why are you being so nice to Facebook? I don't really know the answer now, but maybe the answer is that Congress doesn't want to have to insert itself into regulating this Facebook ad platform. It doesn't want to have to legislate on something that is pretty widespread, touching 2 billion people, and it doesn't really know so well. So maybe Congress is hoping to bring Facebook in, scare the shit out of it, and then hope Facebook acts uh, you know, in a strong enough way that Congress can say, whew, we did it, and not actually have to you know, take their, uh, their bill writing pen out and, and legislate they, on something they, they don't know they, so well. They're not. They're also like not very good at that right now. I don't know if you know. That, they're, <laughs> oh, yeah. they're not great at like. What do you mean? DC is totally functional. <laughs> oh yeah, we have a great time here. Great public transportation system. Well, I hope you enjoyed your time in Washington. Please come back and visit us again. Oh, definitely, definitely. It was a, it was great uh, being down there with your bureau, and it seems like. Uh, the Silicon Valley will be making a trip pretty soon out to uh, talk to the Senate intelligence committee and open hearing so uh, hopefully i'll be able to get on a plane too and uh, but hey before we go can i just uh plug my micro podcast you sure can my favorite podcast oh thank you very much we uh we do our best to keep the quality high and the listeners uh well informed and entertained everybody out there listening we do invite you to listen to delete your account or die trying it's a micro podcast we put it on bumpers also you can find it on twitter it's me and will alden when he decides to um, spend time with me and uh, we dig into the most pertinent issues of the day. I promise that. Wink. It's a genius. So, <laughs> yes, you have the full endorsement of no one knows anything. Thanks again and it was great being with you guys. Let's talk soon. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, man. So, um, when Charlie went on vacation to the Swiss Alps to pretend to be in the Sound of Music for a couple of weeks, uh, a funny thing happened, and that is uh, a big part of his beat kind of went away. And so now Charlie, who is sitting in the other mountains of Montana, is wondering what he should work on. Charlie, what happened to your beat? 
Welcome to therapy. So, <laughs> so yeah, there, there's a really interesting thing. For the past year, essentially, I've been covering the rise and, and reign of the, of the pro-Trump media. And it has been just like such a sort of frenetic, chaotic beat. You know, it's so much happening. Um, and, and when I came back, you're exactly right. There's been this sort of vacuum. And, and other people who cover this, you know, I've spoken with them. And, and we're all sort of baffled by the idea that something so important and vital to like the, you know, the online conversation and sort of the toxicity of the general internet is just sort of like, gone away. And yet n- none of the participants have gone away. Donald Trump is still obviously the president of the United States. And so it, I've done sort of a lot of soul searching on this. And the reason I want, we wanted to bring it up in this podcast is is because I think it, it says some things about the, the pro-Trump media. One of which is, while I was gone, there was just sort of a series of natural disasters, three hurricanes uh, that really affected parts of the United States. Um, Two earthquakes. And and, and yeah, and, and it's a number of earthquakes. Uh, the earth is rebelling against us, clearly. And, and you know, these things sort of really took over the news cycle in a way that in since Trump has become president, we haven't really had a break from hard kind of like political Russia-oriented news. And it, what it taught me a little bit about the pro-Trump internet right now is that it's an it illustrates what a reactionary force they are and how they pretty much, you know, need to feed off of a news cycle that is dominated by Trump and scandal and outrage. And while there was obviously a lot of news going on, it wasn't in a sense deeply political. You know, the, you're you're looking at flooding and you're looking at destruction and 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 and, and people suffering. It's a lot different from, you know, discussing whether Jared Kushner's security clearance is blank. And and so, uh, you know, I've, I really felt that it, it sort of told me something about this beat and, and a little bit about what happens next. And I, and I, and I think that if you sort of look at, um, at this group, and, and, I, and I started to talk to some of these pro-Trump people, I heard too that, that there is a little bit of fatigue right now with Donald Trump as the president in this group, you know, that his, his brand is, is a little bit toxic, even among certain pro-Trump segments of, of, of his base, simply because what's going on with DACA, you know, the, the potential compromise that's in the air, that really, you know, sort of roiled folks in his base. He's, he hasn't really, you know, the failures on, on getting a health care bill passed. There's this feeling that other than, you know, tweets or rambly speeches in which he, you know, invokes the NFL, as we spoke about earlier, there's not a lot getting done, and there's this sort of maybe fatigue with him, and and this idea that maybe there's going to be a f- the the focus of this group, which has built itself up over so long, they're going to use their energy elsewhere, and maybe I that's think it, I think it's transferring to Trumpism, a little bit, you know, instead of Trump himself, Trump the guy, and I think that like that we could sort of start to see in uh, there was a special election on Tuesday. Uh, between Roy Moore and Senator Luther Strange. And even though Trump had endorsed Strange, a lot of sort of the pro-Trump world, people you would think of typically pro-Trump, Bannon, especially the former uh, White House strategist who now is running Breitbart, again, were supporting Moore. And because they feel like he is... uh, he he's a better sort of mantle holder for, for Trumpism. And their message was... 
you know, we're doing this to save Donald Trump, not because we're against what Donald Trump is saying, but we're doing this to like help Donald Trump. So I think it is kind of out there in the open that they see Trump sort of slipping on his campaign promises and, and, and on what he has told his base, you know? I think that's really key. Like, I, I think that these people, you know, perhaps the the calling them the pro-Trump media is going to be sort of a a moniker that doesn't stick very long. And, and I think that it, it, as you said, it brings up these ideas of, you know, how much of Trumpism is Trump actually involved in? Uh, how Like, what did he tap into, you know, that was there before that he sort of, you know, harnessed and, and added his name and popularity to? And how much did he actually create himself? And I think that, you know, maybe what we're maybe what we're seeing with this is that it's going to last a lot longer than him. And, and there's a lot of people who don't necessarily feel like they need him anymore to take this, you know, populist nationalist message. Hey, Charlie, that sounds like a good story. You hey. should write oh, an man. Internet website. <laughs> yeah. Just yeah. Well, yourself. you know, this is uh, this again. Therapy, therapy. Yeah, we worked useful. it out. We talked it out. Yeah. Um, the yeah, your bill. You can send it to Montana. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Charlie. Uh, Thank you. Love talking to you. Yeah. Talk soon. Happy Friday. Woo. All right. Just a reminder that October 6th will be our last show, at least in this iteration. We're going to take some time and think about what a news podcast will sound like for BuzzFeed. Well, when we do have updates, we'll drop them into the feed. So keep your eye out for that. No One Knows Anything is produced by Meg Kramer, Eleanor Kagan and Alex Laughlin. The show is edited by Catherine Miller. Production support comes from Veronica Doolin. Our music is by Beauty Pill. You can find us on Twitter at Kate Nocera and at C. Warzel.